0: The Lord's Church today, in some ways the world over, is plagued with a very difficult and troubling problem. It's something that Brother Burt prayed about just a moment ago. And it has to do with dropout disciples, collapsing Christians, and missing members. We're talking about people who on one occasion, in some time at least, obeyed the gospel of Christ. They were baptized for some time in their life, however long it may have been, they did live a faithful life and they searched the scriptures daily hoping to do all that God would have for them to do. But then for one reason or another, they vanished. I've heard one even call those types of Christians Alka-Seltzer Christians. And that's because you can drop them in water And they will fizzle for a while, but eventually they'll disappear. I wonder why that is. You know, many of our own brethren have noticed the problem and they have turned in many directions in order to try to correct it. Some, sadly, have began to change the way that they worship. Tried to make things more exciting, bring more enthusiasm to the worship assembly and hopes of drawing these wayward members home. Others have changed the things that they preach, trying to soften the gospel or trying to turn away from certain terms such as hell and sin in hopes of bringing these people home. And although these tactics in their minds have been effective in some ways, they've been mistaken. Because the problem all the while has basically been this and will be this for eternity, I suppose, and that is that those Christians have no real foundation. The life that they should be built upon, and we'll mention this verse again later, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, that foundation is Christ and is Christ only. And that particular passage told us that there's no other foundation that any man can lay than that which is lain, implying already been lain, which is Jesus Christ. And so we then turn and say, well, why do they fall away? If the foundation be the problem, what causes them to fall? Well, sometimes it's heartache, sometimes it's suffering, sometimes it's sickness. And you can name various things, but basically a storm has come into their life and they've been blown down flat. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, we come nearly to the close of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, it seems, in some sort of prophetic way, obviously Him being God could do such a thing, but in a prophetic way, He says in verse 24 to begin, And therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the rains descended, and when the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. But in contrast, he says in verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened to a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall, of it. Now when we think about this idea of a storm that we must endure, we have to realize that there are many today who endure storms. As a matter of fact, when you turn it in the focus that we're giving it this morning on those who have once been faithful children of God, but for whatever reason have fallen away, and if the reason be the foundation, you must realize in that that the storms that come into their lives are the very same storms that come into our lives. And that although we may look around about us sometimes with an accusative finger, there may be some here this morning who will not be here at some time in the future. And that can include self. And it will be because of your lack of foundation. So how do we endure the storms? How is it that this storm of which Jesus speaks is one that we must endure? Well, I'll give you three things that Jesus says basically. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is this, that we must expect a stormy blast. You notice in the context Jesus speaks of two men. Certainly He does. He speaks of two men who build two houses. Obviously He does. But He speaks of two storms which are really one. Now they hit that house. And they hit the one house and there is a certain reaction. They hit the other house and there is a certain reaction. And we'll talk about the similarities and the differences of that. But he never mentions a time when a storm does not come. And he never mentions a time when a house would not potentially fall. We need to reassure ourselves of that. Paul told the Corinthians on one occasion, they need to take heed lest they fall. Now the Corinthians were standing in the midst of great controversy. They were standing in the midst of great difficulty and they were faithful in so many ways. But he said, take heed lest you fall. we need to take heed? But expect a stormy blast. Now, if you look into this, you have to realize the reality of it, and that is that storms do come to all men. They may come in different variations. They may come in different colors or different forms, but storms come into all men. We mentioned a few of them a while ago. The idea of sickness or suffering, the idea of someone who has has had difficulty, persecution even sometimes is a storm that comes to us. And Jesus basically mentions all of these. You notice he first speaks of the rains that descend. For me, that picture is as it all. That picture is a storm, if you will, that would come from above. Now, we need to understand that, that oftentimes the things that occur in our lives come as a result of God at the very least now, I'm not implying too much, but at the very least allowing those storms to come. But there's likewise storms that come from beneath. He says not only did the rains descend the floods and turn rose up and we think of those things that are beneath us and we say, well, that may imply at least the satanic things of life, the devilish ways of men. And that's often the case. But he also speaks of the winds that blew and those are the things that come from all beside us. (laughs) We look around about us and we see the world and the way that it lives and we see sometimes our fellow Christians, maybe even our mates or our children, the way that they live and vice versa. And we see the reflection of their storms and how that they sometimes affect us likewise. So the reality is that storms come to all men. But why? What is the reason for it? In Matthew chapter 10, if you want to turn here, you can read it, but in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, for example, I think Jesus gives some insight into that because he tells his disciples there, and ye shall be hated for my name's sake, watch this now, but he that endureth till the end shall be saved. You say, well, that doesn't seem to really relate to a storm. Well, I believe it does because he speaks of one who endures. Now, if there's nothing to endure If there's nothing that can trouble us, if there's nothing that can cause us to stumble or fall, then Jesus is speaking of nothing, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul told Timothy there that he ought to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. Now, a soldier obviously endures different things from a man who might find himself in the midst of a storm, but the gist of it is this, you must endure We often reflect on Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 which speaks of how it is the case that we have to stand on even in the face of death. Be thou faithful unto up until the point of death coming to you and ye shall receive the crown of life. So what is the reality of things? Well, it is the case that we endure these things. But again, we continue to delve into why. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, some say we have a definition of faith. I believe it's more of a description of faith. But the Bible there writes and records at least, so then faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You notice the word substance, and we might think of substance, and we say, well, we have substance when we sit around the supper table. I've got a plate full of food. Maybe there's a big steak and some fries. Maybe a glass of tea. That's substance. That brings substance to my body. Well, the word here means that which, and you slow it down, you hear it, stands under. Perhaps that's why Peter would say in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, and add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, brotherly kindness, and so forth. Why? Because faith had to be present first. So what do we have? We have Jesus on the one saying that you must Endure. We have in turn the writer of the Hebrew letter telling us that faith is that which allows us, that is the foundation which endures. Tied back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 telling us Jesus is that foundation. So what do we have? The reality is storms come to all. But the reason is oftentimes, not always, but it can be always seen in this light, it's to test my faith. You could go through the litany of Bible characters that have been a part of this, but you may notice it easily, at least, Abraham, right? Abraham, when he was called upon by God to sacrifice his only son, that is of his own loins at that time at least, to sacrifice that son, that was a great test of what? His faith. Maybe that's what God does. When difficulties, when problems, when troubles, when storms, the nutshell, all of it, come into my life, maybe it's because God is attempting to test my faith. And I say this, that I've learned in my life at least, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. If I have a superficial type of faith, if I have the type of faith that only speaks from the mouth, maybe when those storms come, when those problems arise in my life, I will not endure I cannot stand upon it. But not only do we have the reality of the storms, do we have the reason for them? I want you to know you have reassurance in them. Some of the most beautiful words of all the Bible recorded of Jesus, but not necessarily as they were spoken from his mouth a little bit later. But in Hebrews chapter 13, you might remember these words when Jesus said in verses 5 and 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, you think about all the things that can occur in life, all the problems that have occurred in our lives, and we say, oh, these are terrible, terrible problems, and these are hard things to deal with. And there's no doubt about that from a human perspective. Certainly that is the case. But none of them can cause me to think, well, God, God, you don't care. You don't have any inkling of what my life is all about. You don't have any care as to what my problems are. God, all you are is an evil God that looks down and you lay these commandments upon me and you require these things of me that are impossible for me to withhold, withstand in and you condemn me when I fail. Is that what God does? I know we've taken view of the text so many times, but it's one of my favorites for illustrating the point. In in Romans chapter 8, if you'll go over there to verse 35, you'll learn much about God and about the love that He has for us. But Romans 8 and verse 35 says, For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he asked several, if you will, rhetorical questions. Now, you may not see them as rhetorical until we get a little further in, but he asked the first one here, Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For it is written, For thou's sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Look in verse 37. I know we've emphasized it before, but watch what he says. And nay, in all these things... What things? He's already listed several. We are more than conquerors. He didn't say an outside of these things. He didn't say if you go through your life and you find tribulation and stress and persecution and nakedness and peril and the sword even. He didn't say what he would say in verse 38, for I am persuaded neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any creature. He didn't say if you can find any of that in your life then then oh, you've got a real problem and you ought to be upset. He said in all these things, Jim Murrell and you put your name there, are more than conquerors. That gives me reassurance. And so we need to understand and swallow the pill, and I think we mistakenly we miss it sometimes, when we obey the gospel. I hope we do not mislead anyone else in telling them, if you obey the gospel, if you do what God would have you to do, then your life's going to improve to such an extent you won't ever have to worry about anything, you won't ever have any dangers, you won't ever have any trouble expect the stormy blast. Now, if every Christian who's ever baptized into Christ would set their mind, if we as Christians would set our minds to expecting that stormy blast, we'd be prepared, would we not? There's something more important than that where we'll spend all of our time this morning. Not only must we expect the stormy blast, but we must erect a sturdy building. The foundation is certainly there. The foundation has certainly been set. That's Christ. But when we build upon that foundation, that's what really divides, if you will, I hate to use the terms of the world, but the men from the boys. It's what divides those who are able to stand versus those which are not. Go back in your text over here, Matthew chapter 7. We'll need to read these verses several times over. We're going to focus on verse 24 and 26 again. Watch it. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. Now, he speaks in the positive to begin with. But whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto. What? What, Jesus? I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. R-O-C-K, rock. And then, and whosoever heareth these things of mine and doeth them not, I will liken him, verse 26, into a man which buildeth his house upon the sand. Now literally the term here means on the vacant earth or on the weakness of just the earth. Earthly things. What are the similarities here then? Are there not similarities to these two builders? Well, I think you could begin in your mind at least by saying to yourself, well, they have a similar purpose, do they not? Both of these are builders. Jesus basically said through both of those verses that all men build a house and every man builds his own house. I can't build Sid's house, he can't build mine. But he says here they have the same purpose in mind. Isn't that true about Christians? If I were to go around the room blind, without any kind of coercion, without anything to it, and I said, what is the purpose that you have in building a physical house? Now, you may never built a physical house, but what would be the purpose in mind of building a physical house? You say, well, generally they're built for shelter, they're built for protection, they're built for cover, they're built for security. Isn't that what we seek after in life? Protection, shelter, we seek the same things. Physically, we seek the same things spiritually. So both builders certainly have the same purpose. I'll tell you something else about them. They seemingly are in the same place. You notice in the text, certainly he speaks of two men. Certainly he speaks of two houses. But he only speaks of one storm that hit them both. You say, well, I ain't seen the word one, O-N-E, in the text. I'm pretty sure Jesus is beyond loopholes. He's been attacked already by this point and will be later on in the text by the Pharisees enough that He doesn't leave. He is the Son of God after all. He doesn't leave a loophole. And if He says to one man that you're going to build a house on the stony foundation that I have established and another man, you're going to build a house upon the sand and if two different storms come, what is the weaker going to accuse? Well, Lord, my storm was much... It was much harder than his. Don't we do that? These houses are in the same place. They're hit by the same storm. Where are we today? From a physical standpoint, we're all here. We're inside these four walls, we're in the same place. Do we not build our houses after the same plan? You know, there's only one way to build a house. It doesn't matter what the certain construction is. You may build of wood, you may build of concrete, you may build of hay or such as that, depending on your area of the world. But basically speaking, every house has at least three things. They have a floor, they have walls, and they have a roof. No other way to build a house. You build a house that doesn't have a floor, and even if it be a dirt floor, what happens? Well, if you could even do it, you couldn't stay in it. You build a house without walls. Well, he spoke of winds that would blow and beat upon the house. Luke tells us, Luke 6 and verse 48, that those winds would beat vehemently. That's with much rigor upon that house. You have no protection. And certainly we need roofs. We need something above us. And when you think about the child of God, we all follow basically the same plan, do we not? I suppose everyone here who claims to be a Christian, if they've studied their Bibles, I know that we have, would sit back and say, Well, you know, I, I had the same plan in mind as anyone else. You know, I thought that I would obey the gospel and God would wash away my sins through baptism when I meet the blood of Christ. And I thought that I would live my life faithfully. And I thought that I would rear my children and, and tell others about Jesus. And we all have the same plan. But that's the similarities of these houses. What about the separation? Jesus only gives the one dividing line. He says one built his house upon a rock while the other builds his house upon the sand. It's not a matter of the facade, the outward appearance of things. It's not a matter of what men see. It's a matter of what is often and nearly about always hidden underneath that house. That's the separating marks here. Now, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6 also that the man who built his house upon the rock that he, verse 48, dug deep. Now, is that significant? I say that it is. He dug deep, and that is to say that this man, perhaps he was like the other man. There's no implication here that this man on the one hand built this house on the rock of Gibraltar. He just walked out, and there's a big rock that looks like a good place. And the other man said, well, here's a sandy beach. I think I'll go here. That may not be the case. Remember, there's the same storm who seemingly hit both. These men are side by side. One man, apparently in my mind, maybe this is only illustration's sake, he digs past the sand and gets down to a rock. Is that not what we as Christians are obligated and ought to do? You say I, I know I know the basics of the gospel. You know you hear, you, you believe, you repent, you confess, and you're baptized. And you could even add to that. And prior to that, that I know that God is in heaven. I know His Son was sent down. I know His Son was sent back to heaven again. I know all of that. And so I have a certain level or a certain place where I could call something a foundation. But I've got to dig deeper. Peter used a wonderful illustration as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that they may grow their body. I know he used the word grow and not dig, but why do they grow? So they can stand. I've seen poor children for whatever type of disease they have, at least on television, and they're not able to gain from the nutrients of the food or the milk that they're supplied. Whatever's wrong with them, I'm not sure. But I've seen poor little children, they're just as big as you and I. I mean, they've grown tall, but they can't walk. They can't stand. How many Christians have I seen in my life? How many times in my life have I come to a point where I'm not standing? And why? Because I haven't dug deep to find the foundation. So we have this similarity. Certainly they follow the same basic Plan, Certainly they're in the same basic place upon the same basic purpose. We have the separation. It has to do with nothing but the foundation. But what do we really want to get to? The significance of this. Why does it really matter? You know, you think about someone who builds a physical home and there's no doubt in my mind it's very easy to go out and build a home if you leave the foundation off. Many people today, whether you realize it or not, if you live in a two, three, whatever story home, you may not know this, but your home was built with one thing in mind and that is the smaller footprint or the smaller foundation saves a tremendous amount of money. I'm not doing dollars and cents, but if you wanted to build a 2,000 square foot house and you spread that out on one floor, it would be more expensive to build than to be a 2,000 square foot house and put it on two. But if you really want to go cheap, You forget the foundation. You take the floor joists, you lay them there upon the ground, and you go with it. And if you're crafty, you can take the money that you save and interject that back into the outside, the facade, put a nicer refrigerator, nicer, nicer furniture in the house, and it can look great. But what did Jesus say here? We've got to read it all again. He says in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth... Now, if you want to underline the word in your Bible, you can underline that one. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And he says, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock. Now, why didn't it fall? Because it was founded upon the rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, what is the significance of this? What is the difference between these two? You say, well, the difference is the foundation, right? But that's not all of it. Did you notice both men heard We're not comparing here a Christian to someone out in the world who has no care at all about God or religious things. We're comparing a Christian up alongside of a Christian, someone who heard the Word of God. But they did not heed it. They heard it, but they didn't heed it. That is, they did not obey it. They didn't do enough to settle upon that foundation you want to go over to the book of James, James gives us, in my mind at least, an a excellent parallel. I am totally convinced. I couldn't prove it if I tried, but I'm totally convinced by logic that James must have been present or at least heard about the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus would preach. Even though he'd be inspired of God at a later date, the parallels there seem so perfect that it's as if James was there. James 122, just to begin with, for example. James says what? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So what are you saying, James? James is saying unto us, if you are a hearer of the word, and remember, both of these home builders, both were hearers, if you're a hearer and not a doer, you are self-deceived. You know there are people that trudge to church every Sunday. Every time the doors are open, I suppose this could occur and Again, I've been there, done that. They trudge in, they come in, they really enjoy what goes on, they leave the services, and someone says, well, how was your service this morning? Oh, it was wonderful, the singing was great, the sermon was top-notch, the prayers that were offered up were sincere, and they'll go on and on. They'll really sing the praises of the worship that we have. And they definitely heard what was going on. But for whatever reason, either have not or will not change their lives. They've heard, but not heeded. Now chapter 2 is a rather lengthy reading, but we must get it all there in verse 14 to begin with. James really picks back up with the topic and he asks a rhetorical question to open it by saying, But what doth it profit, my brethren? Therein that a man say have faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, if one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not the things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so then faith that hath not works is dead being alone. And yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thou faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But what wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest that thou how faith is wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and was imputed, that is, to be counted or reckoned unto him for righteousness unto him. And he was called a friend of God. You see then now how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and when she sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so then faith without works is dead also. Now why do I mention that? Is that not what Jesus is teaching over here? When Jesus says, you can hear my sayings, but you have to do it, and notice the ETH, the King James, uh, really holds to it, implies, as we often say, to keep on doing. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what James said? Now, I would that every member of the Lord's church the world over could understand this text and not be confused. Because I've often heard questions arise and they say, well... I know James says that faith without works is dead being alone. And I know the denominational world out here teaches that all we need is faith alone. So certainly that is a proof text that there's much more needed than faith only or faith alone. But what did Paul mean in Ephesians chapter 2? Hold your finger in James go to Ephesians chapter 2. I hate to have to tie this together, but I think we need to. In Ephesians chapter 2, notice with me verse 8 and 9. That's where people get the idea of faith only, supposedly. He says, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, is Paul and James having an argument? Are they arguing among one another? Is Paul saying, wait a minute, you're saved by faith, and faith alone, and it can't be works. And James says, wait a minute, if you've got faith alone, and that's all you've got, and you don't have the works, you're lost. Are they arguing? Well, the key is in James. Go back to it. You'll find out back in the book of James, to read through portions of it at least, verse 18 is the one I want to focus on. Yea, a man may say thou hast faith, and I have works. You see the next word, S-H-E-W, the King James, we say show, it's been misspelled. Show me thou faith without my works. What's the difference? When you think about what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he's talking about a faith that is directed toward God that in, in man's ideas at least, they're saying if you direct your faith toward God and you work, then you're trying to obtain your salvation by some meritorious or earned works And that can't happen. I totally agree. Scriptures will prove that. But James says this is not a faith you show to God. It's a faith you show to men. So what is involved? Well, there must be a hearing of the Word of God. Then there must be a heeding to the Word of God. Now, that is the practice. But what's the problem? You know, what's wrong with me if I want to really just put all of my mind, all my heart, and all my soul, the things that man cannot see, if I want to put all that in God, and I don't necessarily get out, and I don't necessarily do the work, I'm not necessarily an active member, if you will, of any particular congregation, what's wrong with it if I want to live my life that way? Well, the problem is this. Verse 14, James chapter 2. Reading it again. For what doth it profit, my brethren, a man to say, have faith and have not works, can that faith save him? What good is it? And we're calling this a countless confession. I'll ask for a show of hands twice. How many of you here today believe if you die today, you'll go to heaven? If you're not raising your hand, do something about it today. You know that's a countless confession. I have faith. For me, that's a countless confession. You say he's going to heaven, but what are you doing to get there? What does it profit a man? If he says he has faith and doesn't have works? But not only is it a countless confession, I'll tell you something else about it. It's a barren belief. You keep reading, drop down to verse 17. Even so faith it hath not works is dead being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believest, there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. How many believe there's one God? A lot of people. Won't save you. Not enough. Even the devil believed and trembled. Now, if you go back and you look at that Greek word, trembled, I mean from this most literal sense, the literal meaning of that word means something to the sense of having the hair to stand up on the back of your neck. You ever been like that? You ever been so afraid, so scared of something, that the hair would stand up on the back of your neck? Let me ask it this way. Have you ever... Because of your fear, that is your reverence before the mighty throne of God entered into a worship service like this and felt the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Because you're in such awe of God. Friends, I don't know if I've ever felt that way and I wonder why not. We ought to respect God. We ought to care for God in that way. Because friends, we have what sometimes is nothing more than a countless confession We have what is nothing more sometimes than a barren belief, and it ought not be that way. There are two illustrations right here found in the text. We won't go into them very deep, but you'll notice Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, he speaks of how it was imputed to him for righteousness, meaning it was counted, reckoned, given over. He was given credit for being righteous. Now, if you go back and do your studies, you'll find out Abraham was imputed righteousness Really, a little before he ever came to offer his son. But the key of it all is this, he did do something. Eventually, his righteousness, his belief, his faith in God led him to do something. You take Rahab the harlot. Rahab, I don't know when it was, whether it be a few days or a few years before, those spies ever came a-knocking on her door? When Rahab the harlot met with those spies and she set forth to save them from the soldiers that were out at the door trying to receive them, to put them to death, when Rahab did that, her faith came through. It worked. And if it had not, it would have been nothing more than a bearing belief. Let's imagine for just a moment. Imagine with me that Satan himself were to come and visit with us in worship this morning. And let's just make the false assumption that Satan is a member of the Lord's church. He's a Christian. And he comes at the end of services maybe and he wants to speak with our elders, Bert and Sid, and he wants to sit down with them. And he wants to place membership with this congregation. Now, if you don't understand that, that's just simply to say that you intend to worship with a particular congregation and what that allows is for the elders of that particular congregation who are shepherds that oversee a flock where they know who their sheep are. You place membership. They know that you're supposed to be here. They're looking for you. They're watching for your soul. That's all that is. But suppose that Satan comes and he wants to place membership. And so Burton said, Sid sat down and if you will, they interview him in a way anyhow and they begin to ask him a series of questions. And maybe they begin, they say, well, listen here, Satan. I want to ask you this. Do you believe that there's only one God? The devil says, oh, certainly I do. Yes. They say, okay, that's good. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He said, yes, I certainly do. I know that he was. It's okay. Um, Devil, Satan, then do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? He said, absolutely. You know I was there. I was standing there at the foot of that cross. I saw it happen. Okay. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus on the third day rose from the dead and later ascended into heaven to be with God at his right hand on his throne? He says, absolutely, I know that took place. I saw it with my own eyes. Well, they're impressed. So they kind of changed the questions a bit. And they said, well, Satan, if you were to come and worship with us, do you plan to be an active part, an active member of our congregation? What do you intend to do? He said, well, hey, I'll lead singing, I'll teach Bible class, I'll even preach. Doesn't matter, anything needs to be done, I'm willing to do it. Well, they get excited They've got someone here who's ready to be active. So they follow up with one more question. And they say, Satan, let me ask you one last question. The question is very simple. Would you allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life? I mean by that that he is the final authority in all things and whatever he says you will do, the devil would say, no! And he wouldn't do that. But I'll tell you, friend, that's the way some Christians, so-called Christians at least are. They say all the right things. Hey, they'll even do the right things. They're active. They participate. They do this and they do that. They're involved in the work of the church, but in their lives, Christ has done nothing for them. They have not changed. And because of that, they have what you would call a countless confession. They have a barren belief, but I'll show you something else about this. It's in verse 26. I think the outline has 27. But verse 26 says this very plainly and very simply. He says, For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now that's the illustration. Let's suppose for a moment, I apologize for this, this is all I could do with this illustration, but imagine we have a body here. Maybe it's a body of a loved one. We've seen them be sick. We've seen them suffer, and now they've died. And let's imagine that we could look into them, maybe with an x-ray machine, and we could look and we could see that all the parts were there. We look and we say, well, there's the heart, and there's the lungs, and, and there's the liver, and we could go on naming those parts. Just having those parts present, does that make that body alive? You know the answer to that. The answer is no. That doesn't make the body alive. Well, then answer this one. If we were to some way get those parts to move, maybe we pick up a leg and wiggle it a little bit, or maybe we could even place life support upon some of those internal organs. If we could get them to move, would that make the body alive? You say, no, not really. No. Because why? We would have a body without a spirit, and a body without a spirit, he says, is dead. Now, we understand that. But he also says, now, faith without works is dead being alone. Here's how it really is. You see, works don't make the body alive. You can't just work a body and make it alive. You can't do that. But a living body works. Let me say that again. Works don't make a body alive, but a living body, it works. It does something. If you're here and you're a child of God, you can say that you have faith. You can have a countless confession. You can have a barren belief. And you can even have a breathless body. But a body that has faith and works, it's alive. And you can tell it. So what have we said? We have said that there is a storm that we must endure. And in order to endure that storm, we must first expect a stormy blast. You better know the storms are coming. They're coming. They're coming to your home. They're going to occur in your life. We have said if you do that, then you in turn must erect a sturdy building. The foundation is said, it is Jesus Christ, and you must build upon it, and it must be a sturdy building. You must erect that. And if those things are done, If you realize there will be storms, and if you erect a sturdy building, at that point you can do the third one here. And that is we must exemplify a steady believer. Exemplify a steady believer. I'll ask you to go to one more passage with me this morning as we close. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And look in verse 12. Now this text will be familiar to you, and I think oftentimes it's misapplied in some ways at least. And that's because it speaks of Timothy here as being a youth. And we often say, well, that applies to teenagers or maybe 10, 11, 12-year-old children or something. That's not true. That's not true. Matter of fact, if you do your research, Timothy was most likely about 30 years old when this particular epistle was written to him. So this applies to all of us, adults included. But notice the words. He tells Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, watch it now, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Verse 13, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Did you see it? if I am going to exemplify a steadfast believer. Remember in our text, Jesus said these two men, they both heard the Word of God. They were both hearing, but only one was doing. And I like the way the King James there maintained the tenses of those Greek verbs when they said, He doeth, E-T-H, means He continues to do. And here Paul's telling Timothy the same thing. He said, if you're going to continue to be a believer, be certain that you're a believer. We won't go into these in depth, but I'll ask you the questions: Are you a believer in word? Let me ask you this one. Are you a believer in conversation, that is manner of life? How about charity or love? How about spirit or faith and even purity? Are you a believer in those areas? Do you exemplify a believer? If not, I'll tell you how you get to that point. It's by verse 13. It's through reading, exhortation, and doctrine. You open God's Word up, you let it change your life, and then you pin that teaching or doctrine to your life. That's how you do it. And if you're here this morning and you are a a believer in some senses and maybe you're just not steady in it, And these areas above them, verse 12, they apply sometimes, but sometimes not. I'll tell you how you improve. By verse 13. Through reading and exhortation and doctrine. That's how we do it. And then we can exemplify a steady believer. You remember what Luke said? We mentioned some of it already. Luke chapter 6 and verse 48, Luke records that the winds and the rains and the floods beat vehemently upon the house. He also told us that this person dug deep into the earth. How deep am I digging? If I'm a child of God and I'm exemplifying a steady believer, I'm digging deep. I'm going down. Because oftentimes it is the case that although we may have a beautiful house so far as outward appearances are, we may not really be what God desires. I'll give you two more Bible characters to think about. And I'm certain without a shadow of a doubt, I can make an assumption about James as I did earlier, but I'm certain without a shadow of a doubt that Peter and Judas were present while Jesus preached this sermon. They were there. And they heard Jesus speaking of these two men. And they heard Jesus speaking of these two houses. And they heard Jesus speaking of that one storm that would hit those houses. And I'm sure maybe they looked around and maybe they pointed fingers. And these two men, although they'd be similar in many ways, they were both apostles. They were very, very different. You consider Judas and what he was. Why Judas, as far as a home builder, I mean spiritually speaking and physically, he must have looked great. You remember Judas? He was the treasurer, basically, for the apostles. He was the one that kept the money. Now, I ask you this. Who do we make treasurer in any organization? Well, that's obvious. We make treasurer the ones who we trust, who we respect, who we believe in. That's right. And that's what the apostles seemingly thought of him. You remember that fate filled night before Judas would ultimately... Commit that dastardly deed and that he would betray the Christ. As Christ was there prophetically speaking, he told those disciples, one of you will betray me, and the one who will betray me is in this room. Do you remember what the other disciples said? You might notice not one of them pointed and said, I know who it is, Jesus or Judas. Why well, they didn't know. Matter of fact, the only record we have of anything that was spoken back to Jesus at that point were those disciples who pointed and said, Lord, is it I... Am I the one who will do it? Now, at outward appearance, you might have accused Peter maybe. Peter was always running around doing things he ought not do, but none of them even accused him. But the Lord would turn unto Judas and he would say to him, What thou doest, doest quickly. Judas Judas would stand and make his way out the door, head to gain those 30 pieces of silver. Off will he be in the garden with Jesus to lay that kiss of death upon his cheek. And in our estimation, the way we would term it, that's where Judas's house fell flat right on the ground. Never to rise again. But Peter, Peter who would do nearly the same thing in that he would deny our Lord in that he would stand there and on three occasions be asked, Do you know this man Jesus? He would say, No, I don't know him. I never knew the man to the extent that when they said, Your speech betrayeth you. You sound like one of his men. The third occasion, Peter began to curse and swear, separating himself altogether from our Lord. But what would happen? Oh, he would stumble, but he would rise again. Peter would from that point on stand strong. He would have weak moments, sure enough. Paul would withstand him to the face on one occasion later, but for the most part, he would stand strong in the midst of the storms of life. You see, the problem was, Peter and Judas were two different people. They had built their homes in two very different ways. Judas, if you were to look upon him, his house was beautiful. Oh, it was decked out, it was ready, it was set. Everything was in order, it seemed, from outward appearance. But inside, if you were to dig deep, you would find no foundation at all. But it was Peter that Jesus would turn to based upon Peter's statement. And Jesus would turn and look him in the eye and say, What? Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. What rock? Why, upon the rock of the statement that you had made, Peter had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, friends, oh, I would to God that we could all say what Peter said and know what he did and act the way that he would act. Because when you come down to it, these two men were very different only because of the foundation upon which they had built. Judas's house looked better, but Peter's house stood stronger. If you're here this morning and you are not a child of God, I'll tell you what, I would pray to God today that you would build your house and that you, through faith, Repentance, confession, and finally baptism would wash away the sands. Get yourself down to the true foundation. Through that baptism, the washing of your sins would be made. And you could begin to build your house. And you could build it every day. And you could build it strong that it might stand in the midst of a storm. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are a child of God. But for whatever reason, you built a house, but that house has not stood Problems, difficulties, troubles, whatever it might be, have come into your life and you have failed. You have fallen. Friends, you must expect a stormy blast. You must erect a sturdy building and then and only then can you exemplify a steady believer. I would that you would do that today. Won't you come home, while together we stand and as we sing.